This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Learn more about Reynolds' online retailing approach by visiting reyrey.com forward slash retail anywhere. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash retail anywhere. Welcome to Daily Drive for Thursday, August 18th, 2022. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show, Tesla will once again get tax credits next year, but does it need them? A new study shows broken EV chargers are hampering adoption. Meanwhile, Volvo looks to lower costs with its Starbucks chargers. Plus, a deeper look into the Inflation Reduction Act's impact on the industry with Automotive News Washington, D.C. reporter Audrey LaForest. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Tesla will once again have access to federal EV tax credits next year, now that President Joe Biden has signed the Inflation Reduction Act. Analysts predict Tesla should qualify for the new tax credit with the Model Y crossover, the best-selling EV in the U.S. That's based on new vehicle registrations this year through June. But CEO Elon Musk says the automaker already has more demand than it can handle. A chart posted by the fan site Tasmanian recently put wait times for the Model Y at 175 days. Tesla's U.S. new vehicle registrations rose 61% in the first half of this year to almost 230,000 vehicles, according to Experian. That represents a 68% EV market share. Even though there's pent-up demand for EVs like the Model Y, some analysts say there are still plenty of pain points that could slow down broader adoption of electric models. A new study from J.D. Power says owners are dealing with lots of broken charging stations and a slow rollout of public charging infrastructure. It says those are hurdles that could pump the brakes on EV adoption. Although registrations for electric models have doubled in percentage since this time last year, J.D. Power says driver satisfaction with level two public chargers is falling. The study found that satisfaction with DC fast chargers stayed the same compared to last year's report. Volvo hopes to ease those headaches with its own network of charging stations, which it's building at Starbucks stores. As part of a pilot program, the Swedish automaker will install up to 60 fast chargers at 15 Starbucks stores on a route between Denver and Seattle by year end. The chargers will be from ChargePoint, but include Volvo branding. It's a middle path between Tesla's proprietary charging network and the approach most other automakers are taking, relying on networks built and operated by the government or utilities or other companies. Volvo will have some control over its Starbucks charging network, but without shouldering the exorbitant cost of Tesla's go-it-alone strategy. Volvo Car USA's head of electrification, Alex Trippi, declined to elaborate on the financial details of the charging program, but he says the collaboration is mutually beneficial for its partners, bringing foot traffic into Starbucks while helping Volvo sell more Americans on the ease of owning an EV. And Toyota is one of the companies helping to bring a new hydrogen hub near Detroit. Our sister publication, Crane's Detroit Business, reports that Albuquerque-based Bayotech aims to open the modular hydrogen production system at the American Center for Mobility in Southeast Michigan by mid-2023. 
Once approved, the company would install prefab hydrogen units capable of pumping out 1,000 kilograms of hydrogen per day. That's enough to fill up 200 hydrogen vehicles. The deal with Bayotech came about when Toyota, an anchor tenant at the ACM, approached its landlord about bringing a hydrogen fueling source to the campus. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, Tesla once again is going to gain access to EV federal tax credits. I mean, they already have a huge lion's share of the market. Is this fair to the rest of the EV market? That's a tough break. You know, if you're a rival trying to catch up to Tesla, it's so hard to do because they are farther down the road with a, a big lineup. And then to top it off, they're getting their $7,500 tax credit back, or at least some portion of it. It definitely is a, a tailwind for a company that doesn't necessarily need it. But these are the rules that were able to be reached through the political compromise. And, uh, you know, if Tesla meets them, then they should probably get, get what they have coming to them. Well, another company that is trying to I guess, play a game of catch up when it comes to the uh, the EV department. Dodge just had an unveiling of their new charger. How do you think this is going to help them play catch up and cover some ground? Dodge is a brand that's a real challenge to make the pivot from gas burning engines to electric. Tim Kaniskas is the head of the brand. He's been leading this effort, trying to build excitement for an electric muscle car that is non-polluting, but is just as fun and frankly, badass to drive. It's going to be loud, even though it's electric and they can be virtually silent. It's going to be a loud car. It's going to look really aggressive. It's going to go really fast. And we'll see if Dodge can find a way to bring that brand into the 21st century, into a clean economy. It'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. Wow. A loud EV electric car. They must have like a speaker coming out of the back muffler. Big time. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up, uh, automotive news reporter Audrey LaForest has been covering the Inflation Reduction Act's impact on the industry from Washington, D.C. She'll dig into the details next on Daily Drive. Customer wants to sign documents remotely? No problem. Customer wants to provide documentation and their driver's license in person? No problem. Customer wants to have their vehicle delivered? No problem. There are a lot of steps to complete a car deal. But what happens when customers start online and end in store, or vice versa? You need a seamless, consistent process to start work and finalize every vehicle purchase, no matter where the customer is. Chris Walsh, president of Reynolds & Reynolds, explains how. Retail Anywhere is is powered by the retail management system. So the retail management system is the engine that kind of makes this all work. And it's based on the premise that customers can be anywhere, right? They can be in store, they can be at home, They can be a hybrid of both. It doesn't really matter, but it's a single process of interacting with that customer. And that's, you know, really important to be consistent in that way. And it's only achievable through a single system like the retail management system. Regardless of where the customer is buying from and how, Retail Anywhere focuses on streamlining dealership operations and improving profitability. For more information about this holistic approach to digital retailing, visit rayray.com forward slash retail anywhere. That's R-E-Y, R-E-Y dot com slash retail anywhere. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. If you've been confused about the impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act on the auto industry, you're not alone. Dealers, C-suite executives, and automotive reporters alike have been scrambling the past few days trying to piece it all together. 
Luckily, here at Automotive News, we have Audrey LaForest on the case in Washington, D.C. to help us figure it out. Audrey LaForest, welcome back to Daily Drive. Thanks so much for having me, Jamie. So you have been very busy covering the Inflation Reduction Act, as it's called, uh, which uh, the sort of skinnied up Build Back Better that includes a new version of, I guess the old one was an EV tax credit. I'm not sure if this really is a tax credit, but an, an EV subsidy, some EV incentives from the federal government. This isn't the package that the auto industry wanted, is it? Yeah, no, it, it really isn't. I mean, the auto industry, and that includes automakers and dealers, dealer associations, they really wanted something that was much more simple, straightforward. There was, you know, a lot of talk of simply just lifting the manufacturer's cap, so that 200,000 vehicle per manufacturer limit that exists in the old credit. But instead, you know, they got a an EV tax credit that places income cap limits, MSRP limits, and some new critical mineral and battery components criteria that is going to make vehicle eligibility as well as some consumer eligibility pretty difficult in the years to come. Difficult and complicated. That's been one of the, I guess there's a few things about it that have been really causing um, a lot of disturbance in the industry. It's it's that it's it's so complicated. It's It's much more challenging to meet and it's very sudden. So let's start with this week. Uh, we just had the bill was signed and immediately, basically, <laughs> it's then enacted. Doesn't really, most of it doesn't take effect until January 1, but it is enacted. And at that point, two thirds, you know, 52 of the 72 vehicles that currently qualify were ruled out because they aren't made in North America. But that was very confusing for a lot of dealers, for even a lot of companies, I think. Did you hear some of that in, in Washington? Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a lot of scrambling going on because a lot of these various provisions in the tax credit do take effect at different points. And, you know, as it relates to battery components and the critical mineral sourcing, those increase in stringency. You know, each year there's different levels for that that's required. As you said, final vehicle assembly must occur in North America for EVs sold after the bill is enacted. So that took effect after Biden signed the bill on August 16th, so Tuesday. And yeah, I think one of the things too uh, that was still confusing and maybe not laid out as clearly in the legislative text was just what happens in the transition from the old $7,500 tax credit that, as I said earlier, didn't have any of these restrictions other than the 200,000 vehicle per manufacturer cap and what happens now sort of in this transition period to where effectively we do have a new EV tax credit. It just only has that one stipulation of the final assembly in North America for now, but it already it's eliminating or reducing the number of EVs that are eligible. Yeah, it's very challenging for the automakers who thought they had a program in place that was going to run for a extended period of time, you know, built their models in other markets maybe where there was even more EV support, but started uh, bringing them to the U.S. And now they aren't going to get support. It'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. So this was much more restrictive, like you said, than the industry wanted in a lot of ways. And I feel like that was really the product of the, uh, the bargain that had to be reached with Joe Manchin, the conservative Democrat from West Virginia. 
you know, a lot of people saw him as a, you know, an actor on behalf of Toyota. And maybe in some ways, you know, he helped Toyota by not supporting the program that would give $4,500 extra dollars to every UAW made vehicle. But Toyota did not really benefit from this much at all. They still had a partial credit that went away. Uh, so their plug-in hybrids no longer get the $3,750 support they were getting, you know, and they don't make any EVs here. So, or plug-in hybrids here. So that's a, a real challenge uh, for Toyota and, and a number of others. Manchin had his reasons. He was worried about sourcing and where investments were going and also who was going to benefit. You've done some reporting on this. Talk to me about the the market factors. Yeah. I mean, well, I'll talk about Manchin a little bit too, because it's really interesting that, you know, as early as April, I believe, he had questioned in a Senate hearing the the need for an EV tax credit, pointing to you know the the demand for EVs here that consumers are you know on wait lists for EVs and waiting for those orders to go through for them to get their vehicles, and also pointing to the fact that the industry is still heavily relying in some part on China for critical minerals that are used in the batteries. Because, of course, as we all know now, you know, China dominates the EV battery supply chain still. So when I look at the EV tax credit, the provision specifically on the critical mineral sourcing, as well as the battery components assembly, I feel like maybe has a, a mansion stamp on that because it's preventing 70% of vehicles currently available to U.S. consumers today from getting the full credit and also forcing the auto industry for forcing automakers especially to you know rethink their supply chains you know maybe pull back on some of that reliance on China or other countries for the materials sooner than expected and that's really not an easy thing to do so it'll be interesting in the years to come to see how that really affects the EV market here in the US and how dealers especially respond to it, you know, because, you know, there are some of them are preparing to sell EVs. They say that they want to sell EVs if that's what the consumer wants to buy. Yeah, I think a lot still to figure out in the years to come as to how this all plays out. Well, I think one thing that was strange, you know, this, of course, was done entirely by the Democratic Party. It was not, you know, no Republican support. And politically, it's weird because usually politics, you want to make a big show of what you're giving and kind of be real quiet about what you're taking. And here we have, you know, this is maybe some really good ideals, but in the short term, it's a setback for EVs, which are, which have become a little bit politicized. There's certainly, we see a lot more purchases or maybe buyer intent from you know, people who identify as Democrats or liberals, but, you know, it is making it less easy to buy an EV this year, less easy to buy one next year and in the coming years, but kind of with a, a long-term vision of if we get the investment and there can be North American you know, mining and production and assembly, then we could have a robust mass market that is you know, all domestically sourced. And maybe there'd be a huge payoff to that wow, that's a real setback for the, at least the EV movement <laughs> that doesn't seem like the best timing politically. Curious. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I did have a few sources tell me that, you know, just the restrictions in this EV tax credit, at least in the near term, 
could slow EV adoption or just, you know, the EV market here in the U.S. overall. There's also still challenges related to charging infrastructure and whatnot, you know, that are somewhat separate from, you know, the consumer incentive side of things. But I mean, automakers are still in the process of, you know, ramping up their EV production, getting vehicles here in the US. I did have one Honda dealer mention to me earlier this week how, you know, their first EV, the Honda Prologue, doesn't come to the US market until 2024. So in terms of the EV tax credit and their customers' access to it, you know, maybe Honda's in a better place at that time or not too long after, you know, to really adjust their supply chains to to get that credit or at least half of it. Yeah, it's funny. It's sort of the new program kind of really rewards the early adopters and the last adopters. It's these kind of second movers, the middle movers <laughs> that are really uh, kind of caught in the middle of it. Hey, we're going to run out of time, but before I let you go, I did want to ask a little more about the dealers. I know you've been looking at the retailers because they really are the front lines of the industry. A lot of consumers are going to expect them to do the explaining. And of course, they don't want to get caught making any statements that would indicate, you know, that that money's coming that isn't coming and could really come back to bite them. Yeah, I mean, some of the dealers that I spoke with, I mean, they are hopeful that their questions get answered, that they get the clarification they need in terms of how this all gets implemented on the showroom floor. But right now, since it's still so new, they are really concerned by the restrictions in this EV tax credit, what it means in terms of how they explain it to the consumer, because it is complicated. A lot of this is, you know, it goes above the head of of the consumer. You know, they're not the ones necessarily studying the legislative text and the nitty gritty in this law. So yeah, they're very concerned about how this plays out in terms of their relationship with the customer, because they don't want a customer to come in thinking that they're eligible for an EV and then come to find out, you know, they can't get the EV tax credit, their income's too high, the EV just doesn't qualify, etc. So they're going to be looking to their dealer associations as well as their automakers for um, some guidance on this in terms of how to explain it properly to the customer. Well, it's a complicated story, and uh, we're counting on you to keep explaining it to all the rest of us. Audrey, thank you so much. Audrey LaForest, Washington, D.C. reporter for Automotive News. Thanks so much, Jamie. Audrey LaForest covers policy and politics from Washington, D.C. for Automotive News. You can find all of her reporting on the Inflation Reduction Act and its impact on the industry at autonews.com. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News Coordinating Producer Jake Neer for his help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act, electrification, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with the CEO of MarketScan about Fed rate hikes and how they might affect auto lending. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.